If you're visiting, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. Please pull those out and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, if you haven't already. I believe we've got a very interesting study today. And I use the word study because it is broad, a study. And it's a study that helps us through several different passages, work through a lot of different topics. And I hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it educational. And I find it challenging. And hope you find it challenging, life challenging. I love this study. I hope that you will too. We're eventually going to be in Isaiah chapter 22, but we started in um, Revelation here because that's where we were last week. And if you have your sermon notes in front of you, it says the importance of faith and faithfulness today. And I emphasize today because we're going to look at not only this passage here in Revelation just briefly, but the one in Isaiah chapter 22 in a second that goes back almost 2,700 years and has incredible relevance for today. And so what I'd like you to do is is to um, put your thinking caps on and to be ready to do an honest evaluation. Now, that's what communion was last week, where we thought about who we are and where we are spiritually. And so as we get started, though, I want to recap it by asking you two questions. I want to ask you this set of questions. Number one, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? You would answer yes or no. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? You know, when, and I'm not going to go into the details of the gospel, but you believe that Jesus is God and man who died on the cross, who paid the penalty for your sin. Your sin was something you can never give money to get rid of. You cannot say, I was baptized as an infant. I was baptized as an adult. That None of that has any merit. The only thing that it merit is Jesus Christ, and you've placed your faith in him and you're born again. Do you know you're born again? The Bible is clear, unless a man is born again, he doesn't see the kingdom of God, John 3, 3. So question number one, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? I can say as your Lord and Savior. And you know it. Number two, do you live faithfully? Meaning you strive to be the type of person God wants you to be and do. Can elaborate on that long time, but that is what I want you to ask yourself. Are you living faithfully? Yes or no? Our passage last week and today shows there's great benefits for living faithfully. And I won't go into these details, but listen to these four benefits. Number one, you have peace. I can't tell you how important it is to have an inner peace. Philippians chapter 4, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. When you become a believer, this is what you get to overcome. You who are a believer in Jesus Christ when we sin and we mess up, we can confess our sins, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Peace is taken away from you. You're living faithfully, you're gonna have more peace. Number two, when you are someone that is living faithfully, you're not having as many problems in the world. This world is filled with problems, 
But if I am a thief and I'm a believer, all of a sudden I can be thrown in jail. I mean, that's just real simple. The more you live faithfully, the less problems you have. Third, you don't see this now, but you get greater eternal reward. I can't emphasize this enough, how the Bible emphasizes reward. Faithful people will get reward. I don't want any of you saying, oh my, I should have worked harder. Faithful people get reward. Fourth, faithful people have assurance of salvation. We saw this in our passage last week. We talked a little about it. It's the confidence that you're saved. The less I live faithfully, all of a sudden I start getting involved in sexual sin, drinking, drugs, lying. Believers fall into these traps. We're clear on that. We know that. But if you do that, then all of a sudden there's challenges. Like, am I really born again? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, 13, verse 5, that you should check to see whether you're in the faith. Sometimes even professing believers can go through that and find out, no, I'm really not born again. But the people who do, you have a greater confidence, and the more confidence you have, that helmet of salvation that Ephesians talks about, the more faithfully you can live. Last week, we did communion, and we've been doing it throughout this year on the passages in Revelation, the seven churches, and we went through the church at Philadelphia. Look at verse seven. It says, the angel in church in Philadelphia, right. Now, Philadelphia is not the name of the church. I was thinking of the fact that, that um, th- there's a whole th- theology of how churches name themselves. Um, and and uh, churches will want to emphasize characteristic of God, grace community, the location, Indian Hills Community Church. It's in Lincoln, Nebraska, in Indian Hills. Christian Fellowship Church, emphasizing fellowship. This was a church. It wasn't its name. And when you think of a name, here's my joke for the week. Okay, it's not really a joke, but you, you got to really think about when you name a church because there's a city, a town in America, Ar- in Arkansas, there's a town called Flippin' Arkansas, and the church named itself the Flippin' Church. And, and, and like, you gotta think, people. You gotta think. Um, so anyway, I got a picture of it if anyone would like to see. So um, we went through this church, this church, and we talked about they had faith, and because of their faithfulness, they were rewarded with items only Christ can give, that peace, heaven, the fact, like we said in verse, the verse um, 8, assurance of salvation, the door that would never be closed. The verse 10, the fact that they have the knowledge that they're not going to go through the tribulation. Like we said last week, there are people who might have different views on end times, but they are thinking they're going to go through some of the tribulation, if not all of it. We don't. And we are recognized the fact that we are rewarded with items only God can provide. Only God, Jesus Christ, can get us into heaven. Only Jesus Christ can give us true peace. And as we live faithfully, though, there are other rewards, like the assurance of salvation. And key in all of our study last week was verse 7. The one that does this evaluation, look at verse 7. 
He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one's will shut and who shuts and no one's open says this. Now listen, that is Jesus Christ. He has the keys of heaven. He has the keys specifically of David, which I believe theologically is the kingdom of God that God was promising the Jews that takes us into eternity. So it ends up being the kingdom of heaven. This is one of almost 400 Old Testament references that really are, make the book of Revelation understood. And if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. And I'll tell you what. I was studying this, and I said, let me go back and find out where this came from. And guess where it came from? It comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And all of a sudden, I looked through this chapter, and I realized... Wow, this is a chapter about faith and faithfulness. And when you look at this verse that's used for a man named Eliakim, you really begin to understand who Jesus is all the more. So I thought to myself, as I said last week in the sermon, boy, I'd like to talk about this, but I realized there's just so much in the material in it. So this is why this morning, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at this text. So if you'll go back now to the book of Isaiah, and I'm hoping that this journey to this Old Testament passage that for many of you might be very obscure, may not be something that you regularly study, is something that will really enlighten you about the importance of faith and faithfulness. And it's fun when you study stuff and you learn, and I think you'll learn a lot. You can just see, just jump and look at Isaiah um, 22, 22, that you see the reference. So I want you to see, then I, you, verse 22 says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. That, that will be our, about our individual Eliakim that we'll see in a second. But what I'd like you to do at this time, if you have one of these written Bibles and not just a, not just a um, uh, phone that you're using as a Bible, if you could write on top of verse, uh, chapter 22 that it's about 704 B.C. And let me just give you the big picture, okay, is that we know if you jump over to chapter 1, you can put a marker there in chapter 22. If you would put a marker in 22, go back to verse 1, it says, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. You could write above that, Uzziah, we know exactly when he was the king. He was a king in 740, ah, I can't remember the exact last date, but he will be a reign that starts in 740. Hezekiah goes to about 686. So we know that he, Isaiah is a prophet for about 54 years. He is writing during a time when God has said, enough is enough is enough. He has wanted Israel to be the light to the world, but they have been in sin. And you know what happens when you're in sin and, you're in a, and it begins to destroy your life? And now, in around 931, Israel has divided. The ten northern tribes have gone their way, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which we often just call Judah, have gone their own. Sin causes families to divide. Sin causes 
nations to divide. They have, in essence, got a divorce. The tribes in the north will never have a good king. Tribes in the south, when you study 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles will just deal with the kings of Judah. Judah's kings will go up and down. Right now, when we go to this passage back in a second here in chapter 22, Hezekiah is the king. It's 704 BC. He's a good guy. But God has been telling Israel, you're going to get it. I, I need you to understand grace is running out. You might have faith in me, but you are not a faithful people. And so in chapter 10, he'll start telling them, well, from 7 to 10, he begins talking about the fact that Assyria is coming. And Assyria is a nation that is starting to attack them. And they've got this evil king named Sennacherib. And, and because they are under pressure and God wants them to trust in him and not trust in Egypt. And, and um, he tells the people in Judah, trust me. You can trust me. I'm going to make you a sign. A virgin will be with a child. It's in that context that this passage that we're going to celebrate with Jesus, with Christmas, Isaiah 7 comes about. But he also knows that the people in the north are not caring. I've got my own thing to do. We've got our life to live in. You read chapter 5. There are like six, seven woes, and it goes through all the sins that the people are involved in. And, and, and if you jump to, if you want you to just jump there, in chapter 5, it begins like in verse 8. Woe to those who add house that field. W- verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Verse 18, just chapter 5, Isaiah. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin if with, as if with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. One of my greatest studies ever. You know why that is? Because here's this guy who's so godly and all of a sudden he goes through all the woes and then he goes, you know the famous chapter, Uzziah dies, chapter 6, he goes before God, and then he sees God, and he says what? Woe is me. Very humbling. Chapter 10, you start to see that there's, some of your Bibles might even have the headline, Assyria is God's instrument. It's going to come in, and we know that's exactly what happens. Assyria comes in. What year? For those of you who know, I love dates, 722. 722 BC, Assyria, it's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17, comes in, wipes out the 10 northern tribes. We never hear from them again. God has said, you are not faithful. I I could have given you peace. I was the only one that could give you peace. You could say you have faith, but you were not faithful. It's now taken away. Boom, they're gone. You're sitting there, you're watching this. What would you do if you're in Judah? You should get your act together. The Assyrians are still hanging around. But you go to chapter 13, and some of your Bibles even have the headline, Prophecies Concerning Babylon. Babylon? Babylon's not even a world power yet. What are we talking about Babylon? And then it even talks about the fact that Babylon's going to fall to the Medes and Persians. Why are we talking about them? Because they're, they're nothing significant. 
Because God is saying, listen, Judah, remember, who's Isaiah talking to? He's talking to the people in Judah, and he's saying, I need you to get your act together. And so now we come to Isaiah 22, and it's 704 B.C. And what we're going to see is the first of two prophecies. God is going to give a prophecy against Judah. And then he's going to give the second one to two individuals. What I want you to watch as we go through this, as God is trying to get people who supposedly have faith in him to live faithfully, and he recognizes they don't, and finally he is going to say, enough is enough. So we come to chapter 22, verse 1, and we look at the very first line, and it says the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Oracle, it's a burden. This is a burden. Now, I want you to know that there's great, there's some debate about who this, what this prophecy is about. Is it just about the Assyrians, or is it about the Babylonians? I think it's taking the period that they're in with the Assyrians. This is why there's a confusion. But it's ultimately about the Babylonian captivity because when we get down to verse 14, God is going to talk about the fact that there is no escape. There's no atonement. A line is crossed. And that doesn't happen with the Assyrian attack. For those of you who know, Three years after this, the Assyrians are going to attack, keep on going, and they are going to look like they're going to have victory, but Hezekiah is going to pray, and God is going to deliver them. There is forgiveness at this time, grace. So this is why I think this is the Babylonian captivity, attack, captivity, because we know the Babylonians come in 605, 597, 686, and when they finally attack, and, and they will basically bring the end to Judah. So that, I just want you to be aware that we're going to talk sometimes like it was, we're, we're dealing with the Assyrians, but ultimately we'll show you why this is the Babylonians. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. Valley of Vision, it, you, this is such an incredible way that God powerfully communicates the the foolishness of Israel. Valley of Vision, the, this is another name that has been, the Jews will write about another name for Jerusalem. There's no passage that calls Jerusalem in the scriptures the Valley of Vision. It, it's cited in the book of Jeremiah that it is, in Jeremiah, I think, 21, a valley. Jerusalem's in a valley. It's a vision because this is where the prophets would get God's visions. They were getting God's word and, and the people who should have known and should have seen and should have understood and should have acted appropriately, how appropriate is this to say, Jerusalem, you are a place that gets God's word. You are the valley of vision. And for me, who st- stood on the edge of the, the city of Jerusalem, and you see, even though it's on a mountain, it's in a valley, it's in the Kidron Valley. And so God is saying, what is the matter with you? Look at that. I mean, you look, look, it's like when you... Say something to a child that you wish they would get their act together. What is the matter with you that you have all gone up on the housetops? What's wrong? So what's the matter with you? What is wrong? The idea of that fact that they've gone on housetops is that they are fleeing. 
All of a sudden, God is bringing up the imagery that they're fleeing. And he says in verse 2, you who are full of noise, you, you bo- boisterous town, you exalted city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. You were a party city. You were a place where there was festivity. Everything was good. But now you're slain. You're slain. We're not slain with the sword. In Jeremiah, we're getting exactly 14, verse 18, Jeremiah 38, 2, chapter 14, 38. When the Babylonians attack, especially with this, um, the. Um, 586 attack. Many people will not die because they kill them with a sword, but because they surround the city and they don't let them have food and they starve to death. We begin to see that this is like a prophecy that is looking at that prophecy as if it's already occurred and these people are now dead. God is just saying, this is coming and this is, this is what's gonna happen. And so, you're slain, we're not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. The good majority of the Jews will die because they were starved to death, which reminds me of the incredible judgments in, from when God gave the Mosaic Covenant, the temporary agreement, you can go into the land, but if you don't act right, you might even have to eat your own children. That comes from God, I know it's gross and it's hard, but it's the idea of incredible judgment. Sin brings incredible judgment when you are not faithful. And so, verse three, all your rulers have fled together and they've been captured without the bow because the leaders were chicken and they didn't fight and they ran. And he says, all of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. And you know, We saw Daniel, we see Ezekiel through the Babylonian captivity taken back to the land of Babylon. Therefore, I say, turn your eyes away from from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. And, And you should star this because this is God's heart. He doesn't want to punish. Like, if I ever had to punish my children, I have to think if I ever had to. Ha ha, that's another joke. Okay. As a father, you don't want to do that. God doesn't want to do this, people. But sometimes a line is crossed. And I tell you just the same thing. Just like we saw the judgments in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, some of those churches were condemned and God shut the doors. So these are not just to unbelievers. These are people who are at least professing faith in God. And he says... Basically, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly, verse four. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. God doesn't want to do this, but enough's enough. You go back to those woes, what they were doing in the north or where they were doing it in the south. They were drinking. They were sexually immoral. They were people that were unfair in their business practices. They were just wicked people calling evil good and good evil. I mean, it's like today. We can see it, obviously, in America, where people who are pro-abortion are called the good people, and anyone that's anti-abortion is anti—is just evil. And there's so many other examples. Verse 5, for the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. Where? It's in the Valley of Vision. It's coming to Jerusalem. 
a breaking down of walls and a crying in the mountain. This is gonna be tough. It's gonna be chaos. Things are gonna fall apart and that's exactly what happens with the Babylonian at captivity. Verse six, Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. Here's where you need someone that comes and says, let me tell you about history. Elam and Kerr at one time, well, Kerr we think helped the Assyrians, but we know that Elam I think was to the east of Babylon and was more well known to be Babylonian um, um, uh, allies. And so basically, I think this is God's hint without saying it specifically, because I think this was a prophecy that went out during the Assyrian um, siege, which was going on, and the Assyrians were all around them. So remember, again, this is around 704, but, it's the, but Elam will help in the attacks around 600. So these are just allies that will help in the attack. Then, verse 7, then your choice valleys were filled of chariots and the horsemen took up fixed positions in the gate. This is fascinating because it's, the reality of it is, is Israel's got all these little valleys all through them outside. And, and we, when we took our tours of Israel, we went through these. And you're up and down and they were military locations and not military locations and places where people would have their homes. But it, it, God is just saying these are all going to be filled to be places that are going to be attacked and so verse 8, and he removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended upon the weapons of the house of the forest. House of the forest, you can put quotes over that. That is a specific name. You can find it. Oh, where's my quote? Um, it's in 1 Kings chapter 7. And I know this is more studious, but my goodness, I want you guys to understand. That. House of the forest was the name of the arsenal that Solomon built he, he built this building, and they, amazingly, they have the exact dimensions. It was 150 feet long, it was 75 feet wide, and it was 40 feet, 45 feet high. Basically, they are saying, you are able, you're, you're looking to your, your, your army. You're looking at your tanks, you're looking at the guns, you look at all the things that you've got. This is what you're trusting in. So, you're, you depended upon these things. And you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. Now, this is what Hezekiah did, but we believe they also did it all the way up into the Babylonian captivity. Hezekiah was well famous for building these tunnels, and they collected water pools. And I actually stood in one of these water pools, and I actually walked through the tunnels. They were designed so that Israel could go to battle. And they could block off the entire city, but we would always, Israel would always get water. And, and God knows their heart at this time that they know that if we build up the walls and we get this water, we can stay in the city all day because we can take care of this ourselves. And it was true for Hezekiah's time and it was true for the time when, when I think it was Jehoiakim and those others were fighting with the Babylonians. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem. You know what that is? Let's count how many troops we have. That's, let's count how many troops we have. Then you counted the, house of the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the walls. Some of them you just, you act, then you take the buildings and you, let's make the walls stronger. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend upon him who made it. There's the heart of it. They weren't trusting in God. 
doesn't say God, but you've got to understand who's the one that really made this city, who's behind it all. Nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. That, I think, makes it more clear. We are, we, oh, we've got faith, but we're not going to live faithfully. And our trust isn't going to come out. And ultimately, we don't think that he can handle this. We can win this battle. Verse 12, therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts has called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth. This is a great time of mourning. God wants you to cry and mourn, Israel. Instead, there, and I, when I say Israel, this is Judah. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. Boom! Did you catch that? This is an amazing chapter. There are two of the most famous Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, the key passage and this passage, because we're gonna see this one shortly when we get back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. This gives us great insight into the way these people were taking God's warning. God is gonna bring a warning. God is like saying, get your act together, get your act together, get your act together. Okay, all right, basically, we are gonna fortify the city, but God has said he's bringing this judgment. Sorry, you just don't buy it. It's party time. This is no different than in the book of Daniel when we see that the, the, that the Babylonians knew that the Medes and Persians were about to come to get them. You know where you see that God, the handwriting on the wall, you go back and you study it, you come to our Tuesday night men's study, we'll see that, we're gonna study it. The, the, the idea is that, that they are partying while there's a siege coming against them because they really don't fear it. And, and basically, because we know the depth of sin that these people are in, the drinking, the drugs, the, 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 the perversions, the, the business dealings, whatever, they just, they, this is what is more important to them. This is why they are not faithful. And God says, you are more concerned about partying and making sure your life is fine. And so... You say, verse 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. <laughs> it may come, may not. Let's party it up. Really, this isn't really that serious. But this is where we should all be fearful. Because when God says a line is crossed, a line is crossed, and he says, verse 14, but the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Wait a second, I thought there's always forgiveness, and this is what I want you to understand. We saw this, and this is why we did communion last week about having faith and faithfulness. There are people who claim to be believers, but God will take them out, 1 Corinthians 11. God says, here's a line crossed, you will die. Now, some of these people are unbelievers, some of these people are believers. And, and what I want you to see is these people were what? They were just ignoring God. There was no repentance there was no like, we better get our act together. We better serve. We better do the right thing. You must realize there's no p permanent peace or safety apart from God. There, no permanent peace. These people are having a party, but it will only last for an evening. We must always look around and say, oh, wow. Man, I shack up with a girl and I'm living with her and it looks like we're having fun. We'll have one, two, three, four, maybe five months. Maybe we have a year, five years. Eventually, God will just pull the rug out from under me. I party, I drink, I do whatever. God will one day pull the rug out from under me. You can live a life of 40, 50 years 
and you could think that you have beat God. You've lived your life your way. Somehow you've not lived, lived for God. God pulls it all out and takes it all away, whether it's on this world or the next. And if you think that you can ignore God, there is no permanent peace. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Lamentations. This came true. The people starved to death. I believe some of them had to eat their children. They died. That's why they died not with the sword. God looks at these people, and he's really upset. But let's go on to the next one. Because now we pick up in verse 15. And all of a sudden it says now, as you, you, you would think we're going to go with great, you know, all these other people. I mean, we're going to still work with the nation, but now we go to individuals. And, and here's this interesting transition. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who's in charge of the royal household. Shebna is somebody that gets mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, but really is not that prominent. But we need to understand he is prominent. He is the second in charge of the nation. You have King Hezekiah, and this is his number one guy. In essence, the number two man in command. Come, go to this steward, not just like a lower level manager, but you see to Shebna, who's in charge of the royal household. This is a big position. And he says to them, what right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You have hewn a tomb on the height. You have you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. What he is saying, and this is where you got to recognize as we got to work in, what's the problem with Shebna? And I'll come back to it. But the problem deals with the fact that he's made a big grave for himself. Pick up in verse 17. Behold, the Lord of God is about to, to, to hurl you headlong, O man, and he's about to, to grasp you firmly and roll you like a tight ball to be cast in a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendor chariots will be. Your shame, uh, you, the shame of your master's house. I will dispose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. What basically we can understand is that this is a man who is not serving faithfully. If you put on there on your sheets God's prophecy regarding unfaithful Shebna. Shebna, this is what we can see, is, must be. We're not giving the details, and I love that we're not giving the details because what are you supposed to be faithful? You're supposed to be faithful to everything. But Shebna is during this time with Hezekiah, and, and he's looking at these prophecies and these warnings with Assyria as well as Babylon, and he's saying, guess what? It's not going to impact me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build one of those grave sites that are really, really big. You know, you go down the street here, go this way, you see a cemetery, you go that way, you see a couple cemeteries, and sometimes you see these giant mausoleums, and you see these giant grave, um, these um, buildings within the cemeteries, and it'd be like to the Smith family. So everybody knows the Smith family, the Matissic family were here. We were here, and I'm watching... Um, Austin and I were in Egypt last year, and we were at Sakura on Netflix. There's an incredible dig that was happening right when we were there. We didn't know. It was right down like two minutes from us. And they found the number two man in Egypt in around 2300 BC. And, and, and he's got this incredible tomb, and he's got 37 statues in, of himself in there. 
You guys have to understand, he, Shebna, expects Judah to go on. He's building this because he recognizes, nah, nah, not gonna happen. I want people to know now and forever that I was significant because nothing's happened in my country. And that is why he is shameful and he is not helping the king. He's not being faithful. However, God says enough's enough and he's gonna kill him. Jewish history has it that he will die out in the fields, out in one of those lowlands, and he will be hurled headlong. So he will die, and he will not get the prominence. At this time, he's going to be deposed, though. Look at verse 20. Then, okay, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and he says, I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I am gonna put this person that nobody else knows about, but I see him. I know that this individual is faithful and I will put him in your position. I will give him your tunic, which will be like your clothes. Basically, I am giving him your position and he will be like, George Washington, father of a nation. He will be somebody that is a prominent politician that people, public servant that people look to. And he will be this stalwart. He will be someone that is great for the, for the people. And we know because Hezekiah will use him and he will have this position. We'll come to that in a second. But what you need to understand, what position does he have? He has the position that, that Shebna had, the position of the key steward. Now you read verse 22. Then I will give him the key of the house of David. David's been dead for several hundred years, but it's the idea of, of the fact that this is the, the Davidic kingdom, and he's going to give him the, not a physical key, but a metaphorical key that he is the person in charge that lets people talk to the king, not talk to the king. He executes what the king's will is. To me, this is an incredible picture when we understand God the Father is ultimately the one who gets all the glory, but Jesus Christ is the one that rules and reigns within the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ does the Father's bidding. Now this becomes so much more powerful when you really understand when the passage in, in Revelation talks about Jesus has these keys because Eliakim got those keys. And so verse 22 says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. He had authority within Hezekiah's kingdom to make this all happen. Verse 23 is fascinating. I will drive him like a peg in a firm, and he will become like a, a throne of glory in his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of the, uh, of the father's house, offspring and, and issue, and all the least of the vessels from the bulls to all the jars. So quickly, they didn't have cabinets to put pots and pans in. They would put them on pegs. And if you would put a peg into the wall and, and then you'd hang something on it, if it was secure, it would be firm. And basically he's saying, this guy's gonna be firm in his position. But in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, verse 25, the peg driven on a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And that, I can't read my glasses. And the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. 
Basically, I believe that's Shebna. There's some debate about, who, you know, it, does Eliakim even lose his position? But I'm of the camp that he's talking about Shebna. Now, just quickly, because I know I'm running out of time, and I do this quickly. Just jump over to, to Isaiah chapter 36. And if you were to go to Isaiah 36, you would write above it 701 B.C., in verse 2, they're going to be mentioned. These people are going to be mentioned again. But I just want you to jump down all the way down to verse 22. This is like three years later. And this is why I believe it's three years later. Is because what we're going to see in this passage, this is when Sennacherib is attacking and says, then a, and they've just heard from the representative of, of Sennacherib that you better give up, quit. And so... It says in verse 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household. Wait a second, what do you mean over the household? Well, now he's in position. Who was over the household in chapter 22? Shebna was. I believe Hezekiah got that prophecy and said, wait a second, you're shameful? They did an investigation. They found out, hey, you're going to be demoted. This is why I think Shebna is also a believer. Because look at it says, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe. Now, Shebna has a lower position. Shebna wasn't kicked out in the sense at this point. He was just somebody demoted. He's the scribe. It's a lower position. And this, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakiah. Um, yeah, and so, basically, Shebna has been demoted. He's lost. The Jewish history is that after this time, as the Assyrians kept coming back and forth and attacked, it's, that's when he gets killed. You can ignore God's warnings like Shebna did. I'm going to build myself a grave. I'm have a permanence here. God says, you lose. You never know how and when God will honor you for faithfulness. You never know. Eliakim, I don't think he was trying to strive for this position. All of a sudden, God says, I'm putting you in charge. Now, I don't know if that's what's going to happen to any and every one of you, but I want you to understand, when we look at passages where God talks about reward, you have to know, if you are faithful on a Monday morning and nobody sees you praying tomorrow, God sees you. God sees when you write a note to somebody. God sees when you're bold with the gospel. God sees when you faithfully show up week after week. And maybe nobody in the church gives you any recognition. But God sees it. God saw everything that Eliakim did. Eliakim was faithful. Shebna was not. Shebna got demoted. Shebna lost reward. And so 605 came around. 597, 586 came around. Babylon came in just exactly like God said and they all lost. So let me just conclude. We are rewarded with items only Christ can give, God can give. From peace to blessings in life to eternal reward to assurance of salvation. Do you want those? You have to have faith in Jesus Christ first, and then you have to be faithful because we are rewarded proportionally to the deeds that we do. And every one of you knows, what are the two questions? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Are you living faithfully? Jesus Christ today has those keys. 
I told you the joke last week about Peter having the keys of heaven. That's what the world jokes about. Maybe we'll look at that passage someday again, but right now, Jesus, it's clear, he's got the keys. Does he know you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us an incredible story, and I pray that people learn from the story. The story of Judah, the story of Shebna and Eliakim. And I hope this is causing people to want to be faithful today. Not just for 2,700 years ago, but today. Amen.